The broadcast is heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on 91.7 KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania, on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster, in Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus, in Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on WPRR Public Reality Radio, in New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM, in Minneapolis-St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. I'm Angie Corro of Indeep, sitting in with you. You hear my show on some of these same stations and streams. No decision in the Paul Manafort trial today. After asking for a clarification on the meaning of reasonable doubt, the jury called it a day. They will get back to their ponderings on Monday. Meanwhile, Trump continues to bring on the crazy. Now, granted, we all see what we want to see. I'm blind. You're blind. We all wear filters that make the world conform to our very safe perceptions of it. But still, still, I am blown away by the accumulation of small and large signs that we are laboring under a leader who is mentally unfit to lead anything, let alone a world power. I was in the middle of a conversation that you'll be hearing later. I was talking with my next guest, Thomas Neuberger, about tension between unions and progressives. When the word came down that Trump is vowing to pull away yet another security clearance, this time from active Justice Department official Bruce Orr. This is what happens when a pathological bully gets told by high-ranking military and intelligence officials who gets told he's acting like a blue-faced toddler stripping away former CIA director John Brennan's clearance. Now, you'll hear Tom's reaction to that later. Like I said, the story came down while I was talking to him. But look, this guy is too much of a sociopath to leave in charge. Or at least we need to find some better ways of protecting our country as a whole from his sociopathy. And Jennifer Rubin took it even further. She was asked about all this on MSNBC with Katie Tour, and she shot right past security clearances straight to impeachment. Impeachment is a topic into and of itself and a very long one, but she went there, Jennifer Rubin. There's a, a much lesser story that is just as indicative of how far away from stable genius Donnie is. Now, granted, this story originally came from Amorosa, so give it what credibility you like in and of itself. But the Daily Beast looked further into it, and by golly, if it doesn't hold up, listen to this. I'm grabbing this from the Daily Beast. Early on in the Trump administration, the president vested many of his nearest and dearest with tasks they were woefully unprepared for, and they cite Amorosa. Long before she was his chief antagonist, she was tapped by the president to handle veterans' issues for the White House. 
After some vocal public shaming from military veterans and advocates, Trump, accompanied by her, met with principals from various vets organizations in the Roosevelt Room, March 17, 2017. The event nearly degenerated into a uniquely Trumpian train wreck. Are you sitting? Sit down for the rest of this, okay? Sit down. During this White House meeting, certain details, which have not been previously reported, the president managed to annoy and confuse U.S. war veterans, this time by getting into a bizarre, protracted argument with Vietnam War vets, who were there, about the movie Apocalypse Now and the herbicide Agent Orange. It was really effing weird, one attendant said bluntly. The meeting included President Trump and envoys of nearly a dozen major vets groups. Now, we're talking the American Legion, Vietnam vets, American veterans, VFW, even concerned veterans for America, senior staffers. The Daily Beast goes on to list most of these. Then it takes up the tale. The president began going around the room, asking the different representatives what they were working on and how his administration could help. Wow, almost sounds like the guy knows how to do his job. He had made veterans' issues a cornerstone of his 2016 campaign rhetoric. Soon he got to Rick Weidman, might be Weidman, co-founder of the Vietnam Veterans of America, one of Vietnam vets in the room that day having served a tour of duty in 69 as a medic. Kudos to the Daily Beast for noting at this point Trump famously avoided military service in that disastrous war ostensibly due to bone spurs and once said his prolific sex life was his own personal Vietnam. My God, that man is tasteless. Anyway, according to two sources in the room who requested anonymity, this is when things went off the rails. During the course of the meeting, Weidman brought up the issue of Agent Orange, an extremely notorious component of U.S. herbicidal warfare on Vietnam. He was imploring the president and the president's team to permit access to benefits for a broader number of vets who said they were poisoned by Agent Orange. Trump responded by saying, that's taken care of, which puzzled the group. The attendees began explaining to the president the VA had not made enough progress on the issue at all. This is where it gets really weird. To which Trump responded by abruptly derailing the meeting and asking the attendees if Agent Orange was, quote, that stuff from that movie. He didn't name the film, but it quickly became clear he was talking about the 79 Coppola classic Apocalypse Now, specifically a famous helicopter attack scene. Sources present at the time told the Daily Beast multiple people, including Vietnam War vets, chimed in to inform the president the Apocalypse Now set piece he was talking about showcased napalm, not Agent Orange. It gets worse. Trump refused to accept that he was mistaken and proceeded to say things like, no, I think it's that stuff from that movie. He then went around the room polling attendees about if it was, in fact, Napalm or Agent Orange in the famous scene from that movie. Finally, he made eye contact again with Weidman and asked him if it was Napalm or Agent Orange. 
He assured Trump, as did several before him, it was in fact napalm, and said he didn't like the Coppola film and believed it was a disservice to Vietnam War vets. Then Trump flippantly replied to the vet, well, I think you just didn't like the movie, and moved on. Where do you even go with that? Am I am I emphasizing too much something that, oh, just a mere pittance with all the other more important things going on? Not if we're talking about competence and sanity. Not if we're talking about suitability to lead. For one thing, it's amazing to me that's happened in 2017, and we're just hearing about it now. And I, I don't know, maybe the vets present at that meeting felt that they would further jeopardize the possibility of being taken care of at all if they let the word out. I don't know. It looks like the Daily Beast has, in fact, looked into the story cross-checked with some of the references there, and determined it to be accurate. What matters the most to me, I believe, is that in line with so much else that's going on, so much else, it shows us the man is unfit to lead. All this, this small stuff just keeps adding up. He's a dangerous nut. I use that word advisedly as a mental health client and as a mental health advocate. I, I use those words very carefully. This man is unhinged, period. Another tiny one of less consequence. No, Aretha Franklin did not work for Donald Trump. Let's just get that one out of the way, shall we? Other news. We're going to The Guardian UK for this one. A Google staff protest against the plan for the censored Chinese search engine. The employees of Google are standing up and asking their executives to take a fresh look at ethics and transparency in the company, because Google apparently has secretly been planning to build a search engine that would comply with Chinese censorship. The Guardian cites a New York Times report, Google engineers are working on software that would block certain search terms and leave out content blacklisted by the Chinese government. Why? So they can get back into the market. Google left China eight years ago over censorship and hacking, but censorship. On Thursday, according to the Times, Google's chief executive told the staff that development of the search engine was at an early stage. The company was not close to launching the search app. Company-wide meeting was told that providing more services in the world's most populous country fits with Google's global mission. Back to the Guardian UK, employees have asked Google to create an ethics review group with rank-and-file workers, appoint ombudspeople to provide independent review, and internally publish assessments of projects that raise substantial ethical questions. I don't know how much weight they carry as mere employees, but I like that they're calling out the bosses and saying, you know what? Money ain't everything. Three former employees involved with Google's past efforts in China told Reuters that current leadership might think offering limited search results in China is better than providing no information at all. That's why they went into the country in 2006. It left in 2010. One more interesting note from The Guardian. Former employees said they doubt the Chinese government will welcome Google back. Chinese official who would not be named told Reuters this month it was very unlikely the Dragonfly app would be available this year. Brad was talking to you yesterday about Trump's big military parade. He's all upset again. The blue-faced toddler stamping his little toes. 
From the Washington Post, President Trump on Friday blamed local officials for his decision to postpone a grand military parade in Washington this fall, alleging, without evidence, they had unreasonably inflated the price. He wrote on Twitter, because that's where all good presidents put all important information, quote, Local politicians who run Washington, D.C. poorly know a windfall when they see it. When asked to give us a price for holding a great celebratory military parade, they wanted a number so ridiculously high that I canceled it. He's in charge. He's in charge. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser delivered her own caustic response on Twitter, indicating the desired parade would have cost $21.6 million to organize in the nation's capital. The federal government typically reimburses the district for a large share of security and logistics. Yep, she said, I'm Muriel Bowser, mayor of Washington, D.C., the local politician who finally got through to the reality star in the White House with the realities of parades, events, demonstrations in Trump's America. Sad, oh, points to her, parentheses, sad. She said in a later interview she found the accusation that D.C. officials were trying to exaggerate the cost galling, especially because the city had been working to plan the event with little lead time. Trump said something with lots of capitals and exclamation points, and somebody else discovers it's not true. Stop the presses. Want to get to some good stuff that is going on out there. Let's start things out with a young woman... In Canada, and I mean, she's not even a woman, she's still a girl at this point, Stella Bowles, and this article is coming from CityLab.com, how one kid stopped the contamination of a river. You need your hearts lifted once in a while, right? Nicole Javorski puts together this article to halt the illegal flow of raw sewage into a Nova Scotia river. This determined 11-year-old took water samples and a Facebook page and got the job done. Her mom had always told her not to swim in this river. It runs right next to her home on the south shore of Nova Scotia. She said, I wanted to swim in the water. Mom has always said no. Her brother actually was sailing the waters at the time. She got on some rubber boots. She gathered up some water samples. She put them to a file filter, and she counted up the colonies of fecal bacteria in the sample. She won a silver medal at the Canada-wide Science Fair. And lo and behold, officials will now install between 50 and 100 septic systems in 2018, up to 100 systems annually through 2023. Rhett Jones in Gizmodo noticed that Sandy Hook hoaxer sites are starting to disappear And it looks like it's the folks at WordPress have decided they don't belong online. Here's the article. Alex Jones has been hit with bans and suspensions by platforms ranging from Apple's podcast apps to YouTube to Google. There are few companies that want to be associated with dangerous claims the Sandy Hook school shooting was a hoax. One consequential company that's been overlooked is WordPress.com owner Automatic which is now bringing down its ban hammer on conspiracy theorists. When it comes to Sandy Hook conspiracy theory claims, WordPress and its underlying content management system has a little over 31% of websites in use and controls 60% of the CMS market. After the New York Times reported, the WordPress steward was powering many blogs that promote Sandy Hook lies, it appears 
the company has changed its ways. TechCrunch points out Automatic has quietly changed its policies in a way that appears to directly target problematic Sandy Hook sites. A new rule in its private information section bars the malicious publication of unauthorized identifying images of minors. To be clear, this only applies to sites that are being hosted by WordPress.com. You can catch the rest of this on Gizmodo.com, but it looks like WordPress is staking, taking a stand. And yay them. Now, I've been giving some thought to when you do take a stand, it's often a double-edged sword. There is a Twitter campaign by Shannon Coulter, who's the amazing, amazing woman behind Grab Your Wallet. When I grow up, I want to be Shannon Coulter. Her latest Twitter campaign has people blocking hundreds of commercial accounts on Twitter. These are the companies that advertise on Twitter. These are Fortune 500 companies. These are the folks who have the money to influence Twitter. And you can sign up with her blocking list, and it will automatically block for you these websites of the big advertisers, the powerful companies. Now, I have signed up with her to block those accounts. And I have spoken up to businesses that put Fox on in my face. In fact, there's another, there's another thing up there, a graphic for getting the attention of retailers and restaurants and bars and cafes that have Fox on when you walk in. It's a graphic kind of making its way around the Internet. It's a one-page memo to the businesses that play Fox on the monitors. And the message is, I came in. I asked you to turn off Fox. You wouldn't do it. You no longer have my business. So you got that and you got the Twitter campaign by Shannon Coulter, which is really good. But, you know, I'm aware that these things can go both ways. That by doing what I'm considering to be the right thing, I could be helping to scare companies away from supporting anything. Example, some of the companies that were eventually forced to shun Rush Limbaugh pulled out dollars from progressive programming, too. It's not that they just gave up Rush Limbaugh. They said, whoa, political content, too hot to touch. And progressive programming lost some advertisers. Businesses that stop showing Fox are not necessarily going to substitute channels that actively inform and enlighten people. I doubt they're going to turn on PBS in the sports bar. Companies advertising on Twitter, they may decide they don't want to be used as leverage at all. And they pull out of giving Twitter cash altogether. So it's, you know, it's, it's just worth noting that by doing the right thing, we may be reinforcing our divides to an extent or shooting ourselves in the foot. Before we move on to the rest of the broadcast, I want to point out something that, you know, Jimmy Carter is just so admirable. Jimmy Carter continues to shine as a light, as a wonderful human being, and really makes me mourn what became of his presidency. It was an ugly thing to live through. Check your history books if you're too young for that. But I just want to bring to your attention, there's a profile of Jimmy Carter in the Washington Post right now. I'm not even going to quote any of it. It showed up on Friday. It's worth your time. And it's just a, a living look at this incredible man and how he lives up to the standards a lot of us say we live to or that we want to live up to. But he does. He really does. At 94, he still does. Coming up later this hour, the power of art to illuminate and even mend political divides, how theater, music, and performance venues keep the lights on in these dark days. But first, it's unions versus progressives. That is next on the broadcast. 
Hey, this is Brad. We really need your support now more than ever. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for Brad and Desi today. Coming up in a few minutes, what it means for small arts groups to try to make a living in this divided political era and the price of taking a stand in front of your audience. Right now, though, let's switch to as dysfunctional a family relationship as you can find progressives and unions. Now, unions exist, obviously, to keep their members and their members' jobs alive, safe, vital, and properly compensated. And a lot of that is ipso facto opposed to right-wing values, profits uber alles, social and business Darwinism. But it is not a clean picture. I'm sure you've already figured that out. Thomas Neuberger blogs as Gaius Publius. He took his cue for a current column from The Intercept with its post, Carpenters, Steamfitters, and Other Trade Unions coalesced around notorious Ferguson prosecutor. Why? That article probed union backing for Bob McCulloch, whose half-hearted failed prosecution of Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson got him off the hook for shooting Mike Brown. Wesley Bell knocked him out of contention for the November election. Yay. Bell has the makings of a real progressive. He believes in prison and justice reform to address bail inequality and massive black incarceration rates. Did the union stand against him just to save jobs? Tom says it is more complicated than that. His post is on his website, Down With Tyranny, and at this very moment, he is on the other end of the phone line. Hi, Tom. How are you, Angie? Good to be with you. I'm glad to have you. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's a natural shared interest for corporations and unions to unite over keeping the industries alive and to some extent jobs alive, but... That That's not at play here, where unions backed a non-progressive status quo with a racist standard. So break that down a bit. When it isn't about jobs and when it isn't about saving industries, what's going on there? Well, you know, this is interesting. And uh, thank you for noting the piece. The, the The thing that was interesting to me was, was actually a second thing, not the first thing. Uh, the first thing you mentioned, that unions and you, I like your language, uh, a dysfunctional family. Uh, unions and progressives uh, don't see eye to eye a lot. As I said at the beginning of the piece, the progressive movement is far and away a good friend of labor. The labor movement seems far less a friend of progressives. And that's, for me, to me, always been true. I mean, I've, I've seen that my whole life. What is interesting to me is that over the last, let's say, 10 years, since since the blogosphere started, so since maybe 03, 05 or so, and since, especially because I pay attention to, to climate, the Keystone Pipeline situation, I was in a lot of, of strategy meetings with progressives where progressives would be embarrassed to or, or, or felt awkward if anybody raised the idea that it was unions that were going to try to bring them down. Because there seemed to be this feeling that we have to support unions because trade unionism is a highly progressive idea. In fact, it really is a highly progressive idea that we're for unions. Therefore, we can't do things that that bring unions into disrepute. And they kind of ignored the idea that that these unions were their enemies and they were working for the for the other side. And how do how do they deal with that? Well. How do they deal with that when they're talking to each other even? Uh, 
So what I noticed in the um, Ryan Grimm and Aida Chavez piece is that all of a sudden in the intercept, people who have very strong progressive credentials, both the intercept and these writers, are asking the question out loud, are saying, this seems to be a bifurcation. What's going on here? And it's the out loudness that caught my interest. Uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, it's been pretty obvious that unions have been on the other side since what? Since Nixon with the silent majority, mm-hmm. since uh, Reagan with the, with the Reagan Democrats. I mean, uh, what? Since Trump, where, where the, the Fox News contingent in the white working class has been strongly pro-Trump. I mean, those people haven't gone away. We've just got a multi-headed beast here, and as you said in your introduction, it doesn't do to look at just one head and characterize the beast. This has overtones to me, Tom, of the elite working class divide, and I know that like every other generalization, that is deeply, deeply flawed. But over the years, I have seen a number of people, and I live on the coast, you live on the coast, people who live in urban areas have trouble making the case to people who work in the coal industry, people who work in the oil industry saying, look, this is an ultimate good if we eliminate your industries. And it's a very hard case to make. And I can imagine a simmering resentment, much as we hear with so many other issues that divide the urban from the suburban from the rural. All of that is true. Um, the, when it comes to the pipeline, these people were fighting for a lie. And they, they probably knew that it was a lie. They were fighting for 40 jobs, which were permanent, and a whole bunch of temporary jobs when after the pipeline was built was going to go away. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at the laborers union, the LIUNA, which is a, a notoriously right-wing Fox News kind of union. Those people were only going to be digging um, or, or carting. After, during construction. These are construction jobs. These are not permanent maintenance jobs for the pipeline themselves. So what else is going on? I'll, I'll say it just straight up. These are people that hate the hippies. They've hated the hippies since Nixon. It's in that culture, and it has carried through even into, I mean, what does Trump appeal to? He appeals, he appeals to that sentiment. Now, as you say, unions are not a, not a single thing. You've got a lot of um, people of color working in the unions these days, and you've got an awful lot of pro-Bernie members working in a lot of these unions. So you've also got divides between the union members and their leaders, mm-hmm. and the people who are especially ensconced in those union CEO offices who are, who are never going to leave or, or are going to try to never leave. So you've got that divide as well. There was a version of this piece. I'll, I'll end with this because I know you want to you want to ask something else. But there was a version of this piece that was printed at Naked Capitalism in the last few days, and that that commentary group, the commentariat at Naked Capitalism, is excellent. Quite a few people who weighed in in that comment section were union members and offered an awful lot of thoughts about what they thought. Because I presented the post as questions, mm-hmm. not answers. Right. And they offered a number of answers that triangulated this in a whole lot of different ways. You can slice through this cake in a lot of ways and still and get information with each slice. So I just want to lay that out there. I don't think there's an answer. Mm-hmm. I think there are answers. And I'm just so glad that progressives are starting to ask the questions because those answers will be helpful. 
Do you see this? And again, your your article posits questions and not answers. But your take on this, do you see this as one of the larger issues of the traditional Democrats versus the progressives that we see playing out in so many other facets? Boy, um, that depends on how you how you would define larger. Uh, how would you define the larger issues? What criteria would you use? Well, we see the blue dogs versus the yellow dogs, and we see that the progressives, the stronger their voice gets, the more we see that just as the unions aren't necessarily the liberals' friends, the Democrats, for those who haven't gotten the memo, are not necessarily the progressives' friends. That's one of the phenomena that worries me as we go into 2020 is that we can see such strong divisions in the responses to Trump and his allies that I, I hope we can get it together. So that's my my version of the larger picture. Um, yes, I I disagree with a lot of people in that I see Trump as not the issue, but an issue among many. Mm-hmm. Um, my model for what's been going on is that there are three armies in the field, not two, and the other two armies both hate us, us being the progressive army. Mm -hmm. The first army that hates us is the Obama and Clinton Democrats who control the party. They aren't the whole of the party, but they're in control of it. And the other is the radical right, which has gotten control of the Republican Party and which is skillfully using Trump to achieve their ends, the Koch brothers' ends. If we don't defeat both armies, we're in deep trouble. So both armies, we mm-hmm. can't go back to Clintonism and expect that the country will say, oh, that solves the Trump problem, because before there was a Trump problem, there was a Sanders problem in the Democratic Party. So you're bringing out the, the split. I think the split is absolutely critical. I think that the most important thing that I've seen in the last year or two has been progressive Democrats recognizing that mainstream Democrats, corporate Democrats, and new Dems are their enemy and are acting like it. Because frankly, those people have been punching progressives in the face for the last 10 years. It's about time that the progressives started to fight back and in recognition of that. As a subset of that dynamic, recognizing that unions have some unions and some union leadership and progressive union among the lead progressive union members have been punching um, progressives, hippies, however you want to call it, hippie punching in the face for the last 10 years is uh, also important. I'll give you one example about unions. Um, one of the people who wrote in in that comment section said, I'm a member of IATSE, which I'm sure you know, um, Angie, right. mm-hmm. but it's, the, uh, it, it's, it's a big union in, in Hollywood. It's a big trade union. One of the craft unions, they call it. The members, ju- the, the members jumped all over their leadership because uh, IATSE leaders went for Clinton early and hard. And uh, obviously, the, the connection between Hollywood funding and the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party is very, very strong. So the unions represented that interest, which is the money in Hollywood. Um, but the members were very much pro-Bernie. And we're, we're, we're just their, their interests were shunted aside by the leaders who were currying favor with the Democratic Party. The leaders will say, we're doing that because the Democrats, the mainstream of the Democratic Party is where our interests lie because they're going to win, not progressives. But I think there are cultural, um, uh, obvious cultural clues there as well. 
I'm talking to Tom Newberger, and he blogs as Gaius Publius and any number of things we can keep talking about, Tom. But I, I want to stay with this for just a moment because what you say strikes some fear into my heart because what I hear is the fragmentation that gave us Trump. And I know that you and I look at Obama and Clinton a little differently, but I think we agree that they are deeply, deeply problematic where true principles are involved. Strictly numerically, I think it's the division that gave us Donald Trump. Uh, You know, and it's the old conundrum. Do you hold your nose and vote or do you vote wholeheartedly? And I don't think we necessarily, when I say we, I mean the lower left corner of the liberal charts. I don't think we have the numbers to defeat both the conservative Dems and the Republicans. That's my fear. It's it's an understandable fear. Let me put uh, two ideas what I what I think of as mitigating ideas into your head. The first mitigating idea is you and I and all of our brothers and sisters who do what we do have no control. We're not in charge. The people who are in charge are the mass of voters who wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders and couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Those mm-hmm. people are in charge. Who's in charge next? The Democratic Party can either decide to bring those people in or turn them away. Lately, lately meaning as long as I can remember, they've been turning them away. They are still turning them away. So if I have that fear that you do, mm-hmm. but I see the Democratic Party acting against not only their own interest, but the interest that I represent and that you represent. We want to see a progressive change in this nation. We're not going to get it from a Democratic Party who rejects its its strongest new voter base. I mean, we could swamp. Look what Ocasio-Cortez did. Um, she, she swamped the uh, Crowley vote with voters of her own from, from places where people generally tended not to vote because they thought it was hopeless. She went out and said, it's not hopeless. Come vote for me. And she won because mm-hmm. she brought in new voters. That's what Sanders did. He brought in new voters. Clinton turned those voters away. The Democratic Party is turning those voters away. And the only control I have over them is to shame them for it. I'm, my audience is not people who won't vote Democratic because those people won't vote Democratic anyway. My audience is, pe- is Democrats who ought to know better and who need to get on the other stick and not the stick they're writing now. That's the first mitigating factor. We're not in charge. The second mitigating factor um, – I forgot because I went too long on the first one. <laughs> so if it, if it comes to me, I, I will interrupt and say what it is. Don't you hate that? <laughs> I know. I know. It's terrible. It's this left coast weather we're having. It's too nice. I know. I know. Well, let me move on to something else that uh, I definitely wanted to talk over with you. And that's an article that you're currently working on. And if I can pull the curtain back on that a bit, Democrats can block the Kavanaugh nomination if they want to. Make your case, Thomas Neuberger. Well, so <laughs> this was a hard piece to write, and it's circulating now. I hope it gets picked up somewhere. It's it's, it's actually completed as an op-ed under my name, mm-hmm. not under the guy's name. Um, there is a tactic that actually will work. It's it, it, So the piece goes in to explain that. I don't know if you want to go into what that tactic is or not, but there's a there's a tactic that Senate Democrats can do 
that represents their absolute strongest chance. It's the kind of thing that Brian Schatz said after they, they blew it with the Merrick Garland nomination, where Schatz, after the fact, said, this is the Democratic senator from Hawaii, we should have shut down the Senate. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a way to put the screws to the Senate that if Democrats wanted to do it, would put the screws to the Senate. And it represents, in my view, at least a 50-50 chance, if not a, a better than 50-50 chance, of making Republicans withdraw the nomination by setting the price of pushing that nomination very, very high. And it doesn't require popular support, and it doesn't require um, – a whole bunch of, of credo letters and petitions coming in to Senate offices. It's something that Democrats can do today if they decided to. So what's the problem? The problem isn't that the tactic isn't available. The problem is twofold. One, will Democrats do it? Mm-hmm. I think the odds are no. That the point of the piece is to push Democrats to the point where they kind of almost are shamed into having to do it. Mm-hmm. But the other problem is if they don't do it, look at those look at those non-voters again, those millennial and first-time voters who look at the Democrats and say, "What good are they? Look at this. What good are they? And what's going to come out of the uh, out of the, uh, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination is something that's not true of every other nomination in the last twenty years. A a t- 15 to 30 year lock on the Supreme Court by radical right co-coke judges who will turn this country upside down from the bench. Yes, yes. And speaking it's as a woman, over. I have even if, more to lose. Kavanaugh to goes on the bench. Yes, yeah. Um, we, you, you're absolutely right. Though I have two grandchildren who are daughters. Mm-hmm. Roe is still, Roe is just the tip of the iceberg. They can they can overturn the ability they can overturn the entire regulatory state by citing a a, a case that was cited that was passed uh, that was a uh, a thing in the in the New Deal civil I'm sorry the New Deal Supreme Court there was a period when the Supreme Court was opposed to the New Deal and were rejecting every law that the, that Congress passed then uh, FDR said okay we're going to pack the damn bench. And then, even though the the bench the bench packing didn't succeed, the Supreme Court suddenly got religion and started approving all of the New Deal laws. That occurred in 1937. It was the turning point. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, they issued decisions like Schechter Poultry. Schechter Poultry is a standing, never rejected Supreme Court decision that says Congress can't delegate its regulatory authority to the executive branch. All regulation has to come from Congress by passing laws. That would entirely undo every regulatory administration in the in, in the United States government. Oh, the FAA would have to be run from Congress. Mm. It, people would use that selectively. But here's a here's the kicker: Neil Gorsuch. Neil Gorsuch was a judge before he was a Supreme Court justice. Mm. As a judge, two years ago, he cited Schechter. That is chilling. They will do whatever they think they damn please. And there, this is a this is it was kind of an illusion that Kennedy was a swing vote, mm-hmm. though he was on some issues, gay rights, for example. Mm-hmm. There will be no swing vote on the next court for the next fifteen to thirty years, and these are ideologues. These are not just kind of racist people. These are people who believe strongly in what the Kochs believe government should be shaped like. 
I'm going to keep my options open to look at other countries to live in, and I think a lot of people are thinking along my lines. <laughs> Not being extremist, it turns out that I have an easier road to Italian uh, because of my my father, I have an easier road to Italian citizenship than some others might. So I'm just keeping that in mind. I don't know if we all want to think that way. One last thing, and I did. Can, can you can you chain migration your friends? I'll be your friend if you want to chain migration. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know. Stay on my good side. One last thing. This came in as we were talking. I just want to get your take on it because you're such a good observer of politics. From the Washington Post, Trump says he plans to revoke the security clearance for Justice Department official Bruce Orr. Very quickly, he says he is a disgrace who's tied to Robert Mueller's investigation. Any thoughts? Uh, yes. Is this a Justice Department, a present Justice Department person or former? Present. Okay. I, I had a conversation in my meeting um, prior to this call where uh, we talked about re- rejecting, re- revoking the, the security clearance for Brennan, entitled to a nomination. So even though that's presented as a, um, as a fascist thing to do by the news agencies that re- are reporting that, mm-hmm. in fact, the, any president is entitled to revoke the nomination of somebody who's no longer an employee. A sitting employee, on the other hand, is interesting. Um, that gets into Trump is at war with the security state. Yes. Or parts of the security state. I think, my take, I think that, like our union thing that we started with, needs to be looked at from more than one angle. It's not to say that the Trump is terrible angle is not an angle that's important. Mm-hmm. It's also to say that if the security state is leaking to the Mueller investigation, for example, that might be an issue if that were happening if the president were Sanders mm-hmm. and the right-wing elements in the security state were working with the press to bring him down by leaking things that they had access to because they're current government employees, as opposed to whistleblowers who go public with stuff right. and put their names on the line. Yeah, yeah. I knew I could throw you a curve. You're a marvelous interview. I look forward to the next time we get to talk, Tom. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks so much, Angie, for having me. Tom Newberger, you have seen him post for many years as Gaius Publius, and you can check out his blog at Down With Tyranny. I'm Angie Caro, back with more on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Oh, well, the man who stole the future has an oil drum for a heart. And a strange I'm Angie Quero. This is the broadcast. Brad and Desi have the day off. Art is politics. Politics is art. They're very hard to disentangle, nor should we. This last portion of the broadcast today is given over to arts artists, their politics, their audiences. This is for you if you create art. 
if you're an actor or a comic or a dancer or a playwright, if you're struggling to find the funding to do that, if you're wondering what the trade-offs are when you take whoever's money to keep your art going. It's a conversation for you if you support the arts, either with your bucks or with your butt in a seat. How are the artists that we support making it in a world of haves and have-nots? How can they keep creating art that asks critical questions while having to ask for money from audience members and from funders who might suffer from the answers to the questions they're asking? This is a conversation that I had last week for my own show, In Deep with Angie Cuero, on the politics and funding of the arts, with touring musician and radio host David Gans, Merith Hagedorn, who is the founder of the Dragon Theater, that is a suburban storefront theater, presenting small stage innovative plays. You're never going to see Oklahoma there. And Ronit Widman-Levy. She's artistic coordinator for a much larger venue, the Oshman Family JCC in Silicon Valley. So quite a range there as we talk to these folks about what keeps their arts alive. Here's part of our conversation. Uh, Meredith, can we take on the idea of the politics that can be addressed in art, where in a time when the idea of what is being represented can be really difficult terrain. Um, let me, to use an analogy in news, if you're not saying that climate change doesn't exist, you're not giving both sides. I'm a news person. That's why that occurs to me. Is there a parallel in theater to that? Uh, yes, I believe there is. I believe uh, where you are located makes a difference. Uh, Dragon was nomadic for the first six years, and we were hopping all over the Bay Area. So when we would be performing in San Francisco, it was different than San Jose or, you know, Palo Alto. We were in Palo Alto, actually. We had a small theater in Palo Alto for seven years, uh, and we needed to tread lightly with the conservative uh, environment that we were in. Um, and we were able, once we came to Redwood City, to be a little more, I hate to use the word edgy, but uh, we were able to. Uh, and I know that there were a lot of discussions in 2016 when a, a certain person became our leader. Uh, and that because we run a nonprofit theater company, uh, we are for the public. We do have a board of directors, and everyone on the board does not think the same or vote the same. So we do need to have open conversations. Um, but what we also have found is that we should believe in something as well. Because I founded this organization, I am a woman. I support Planned Parenthood, and I shouldn't be afraid to say that. Uh, so, so we, yeah, we we were treading lightly for a while, and and talking to a lot of different people, and wondering how to navigate this new terrain. Um, but but we found that it's okay to to tell certain stories that we want to tell. And, you know, even if certain people may not feel the same way, we, you know, we're not trying to alienate people as a nonprofit, as an arts organization. We, we want to bring people together. So it, it does factor into the programming that we do. David? I tend to be less explicit in what I say on stage 
uh, but more forceful in putting my songs forward that address these things. Mm -hmm. I, I work in a world that's sort of more entertainment-oriented, although I grew up in a time when we thought music was going to change the world, and it damn well did. Not enough, apparently. But, uh, you know, I write songs that say something, and I'm in it working in a milieu that doesn't always appreciate that. They just want to have kind of a good time, you know. Mm -hmm. But I... Um, I'm, I'm careful what I wear. I don't wear like strong political statements on my chest because it could get me beaten up at a gas station in uh, Georgia or something, you know. So I, I keep a low profile in those ways, but I lean heavily on the songs that I've written that address these things. I have a song called Save Us From The Saved, and I will perform that anywhere uh, and I, I did that once in Georgia, and a guy came up to me afterward, and I thought he was going to give me a big hard time, but he thanked me for it instead. Tell us the nature of that song. Uh, it's it's just about, um, uh, well, there's a line in it that says, uh, uh, let's see, uh, there are many here among us who feel that um, this world is theirs, and when it's beaten and depleted, they will rise into the air, and the ones who don't believe them face a dark, eternal grave. No one knows, but they are certain. Save us from the saved. Ernie, I'm put in mind of an hour that I did earlier this year uh, with a book called The Givers, David Callahan's book, The Givers. And the whole process that he describes in the book, and as I mentioned earlier with that Atlantic article, is that there are people who are generous to the arts, to medicine, to everything, but there are often strings attached. Um, even if they be subtle, even if it's not explicit, there's an idea about, in the arts, what you will present, what tenor it will be, whether that money is going to be there next time. I don't want to put you in an awkward position, but how much do you feel you can address that? Um, I have to say that I don't feel that at all. I, am, I think it's our duty as curators to be loyal to the profession, to be authentic, to not waver on quality topics, um, uh, risk taking, be willing to do all of those in the face of you know whatever you know the donors will say. They end up really appreciating it. Has that's been my lesson? Mm -hmm. um, and instead of fighting you on on topics, they join you. They say, "Oh, this worked." We didn't think it would work. It did. I have a friend who wrote a book about this and that. And, and you find that you have this amazing network of connections um, at your disposal because now we're doing this together. So I think if you just stay loyal and brave, and yes, sometimes um, I know of situations where you've had to pay you know, a, a price, if you will, for making a, a specific artistic choice. I can't say I've had that experience mm -hmm. at the JCC. We have an amazing board who actually expects and demands a variety of uh, a, a program that is very uh, prolific. Um, we have theater, we have music, we have cabaret, children's shows, authors, speakers um, of all races, all religions. Uh, I think that is the beauty of the Ashman family JCC. It's a very unique community that doesn't, uh, it's not that we allow for it, we expect it. We call that in 
and uh, we make a great we go to great length to make sure that that our seasons represent that mm-hmm. uh, year after year uh, I think we've um, We've learned from our audience that um, as soon as they trust us not only to program uh, well by them, but to challenge them, you know, not just to uh, give them entertainment, mm-hmm. but to make them think. Um, we've carved from the Silicon Valley um, different audiences that we have not seen before. We knew that they were there. We didn't know where to find them. Well, you have to build it and they will come. I know it's cliche, but it's true. Uh, one of the projects that I did that was super successful and I'm really proud of is I've produced Peter and the Wolf, this iconic symphonic um, narrated symphony. Um, but I've produced it back to back four times, once in English, once in Russian, which is the language of origin, once, once in Hebrew for the large Israeli community, and uh, once in uh, Chinese. Oh, um, wow. And so we summoned a large um, community that we didn't know was looking at our brochure and was looking at us as a possibility for an for a family outing. On top of that, in between the shows, I've carved time and provided activities for families that are related to the shows, you know, uh, drawing and painting and um, playing instruments from the orchestra. We had an instrument petting zoo between the shows. <laughs> so the people coming out of the first show were meeting the audience that was going in. Those are communities that would usually not look to mix. They would not search for those opportunities. But children and music are, you know, a bridge. Let's talk about funding. That there's, there's a vision for artists that, wow, the NEA is not only there for all of us, you know, it's plowing money into the arts. And in fact, the NEA has a lot of challenges politically. Uh, you know, they're often accused of being liberal, et cetera. And there's also only so much money to go around when you're talking about grants. So if I can start with you on this, Meredith, what what parts do grants play here and how does that play out compared to what you expected? We definitely apply for the grants that we can, but there isn't a lot of funding out there for the arts. Now, Mm -hmm. I know everybody needs to hear that because that's all we ever hear from people is say, oh, you should just write a grant for that. (laughs) People people have no idea that, no, there really isn't a lot of funding out there for the arts. Plus, they've never tried to write a grant. Well, that's for sure, because you absolutely have to consider the time ratio that it takes to write an application is just massive. So if you have a very small staff, um, a lot of volunteers or or part-time contractors, and you're going to spend hours and hours and hours applying for a grant application that will maybe warrant you $1,000, $2,000 maximum, it's not worth your time. So we we try hard not to chase the money. We call it chasing the money because a lot of foundations, they want to fund certain projects or certain very specific things, and they don't want to 
fund general operating budgets. So we don't want to create a new program just to go after that money when we don't have the bandwidth to even support that new program. So it doesn't make sense to us, but we do, we continue to apply for what's out there. Um, but no, it really doesn't factor into our overall operating budget much at all. Renita, I wish people could have seen your face when I talked about how hard it is to get a grant together. It is. It really resonates with me, um, what Meredith just said, because um, we're paying people to write these grants. And if the grant is going to just cover the time the person put in to write it, then it, does, it just doesn't make sense. We need and want the money, but it has to make sense and we have to be financially responsible um, to, to survive. What did you notice in your audience after the election? Any fall-off, any different reactions? I'm not sure. I was so gobsmacked by it myself that I may have lost the ability to perceive what was going on. I'm so, I mean, the whole thing scares the hell out of me. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I travel in a lot of parts of the country where it's not safe to assume that all the people around you feel the way you do. And so I sort of, hunkered down a little bit and reduce the amount of blatant political, even though my, I believe that my attitude is pretty humanistic and uh, uh, de designed to promote love and stuff, it still winds up reading as very angry at the right wing, which yes. I am. So I, I don't know exactly what how to answer your question because... My job is helping people celebrate and forget that stuff. And I think that the gigs that I'm playing are one place where people can go to not think about that. Right, right. And, and again, I'm doing songs occasionally that address those things, you know, to, on one level or another. So I'm still trying to put a little information out there. But I, I can't say that I've observed a lot of uh, ebb and flow of, uh, specific to that thing. Well, we had to, we had to adapt. Um, we had planned to do a, a post-election breakdown the day after the election because it was a show day for us, and instead we turned it into a psychology session. <laughs> we every it, we got off the stage. We formed a circle of chairs. The audience came in shell shocked. We made sure there was wine and there was coffee, <laughs> and and we all sat around and pretty much wept and mourned together. So, uh, Meredith, was there any change in the audience for the dragon? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, like I mentioned, had a lot of big discussions with different groups and, and talking about how do we navigate this uh, as a, a nonprofit leader in this community, but also as an organization that was at that time predominantly made up of women. Um, and so we, we made the decision to put the sticker on our window saying we support Planned Parenthood. We actually did a fundraising ev event, a one night event. Um, uh, for Planned Parenthood. Um, and, and, you know, yes, we were all shell-shocked as well, but we've, we've never been blatantly, let's, you know, let's rail at the right, let's rail at the left, whatever. We tell a wide variety of stories. It is a slice of life. We, we do, you know, think about diversity in, in storytelling as well. Um, so we also bring people together in hopes to, 
leave all of that outside and and, and have a, a mutual experience with this small number of people that are that can fit into this theater and hopefully make you think, hopefully make you feel something and, um, you know, hopefully get people off their couches and come together and whether you need to mourn together or or, you know, try try hard to continue to to teach kindness and empathy and you know and love and and try to keep all of that alive as well and what we do and that is it for today's bradcast i'm angie Quero, turning the mic right back over to brad and desi for our next show i will talk to you later this month in the meantime good luck world